Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, we get to talk to each other in more than just the intro and outro, Jacob. That's right. I've been reporting on a proposal from Governor Steve Sisolak that could break up the Nevada system of higher education by putting the state's four community colleges under their own independent authority. Jacob is going to explain to us what the potential breakup could mean in the broader context of higher education in Nevada. After that, we meet Fabian Donate and Tracy Brown May, two freshman Democrats who were appointed to the legislature after the session got underway. At the end of the show, we have our weekly coronavirus update with healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. During his State of the State speech last month, Governor Steve Sisolak announced something of a higher education surprise. Over the next two years, he would direct legislators to work with the Nevada system of higher education to transition the state's four community colleges to their own governing board, effectively splitting them apart. Jacob covers higher education for the Indy and sat down with some of the people that would be involved to find out why the governor made the suggestion and why it's happening now. So Jacob, what did the governor actually say in his speech? So not much, actually. His speech was centered on a lot of things because the coronavirus is still happening and the budget impacts are still huge. So he only had about three lines that mentioned community colleges. What those lines said, he wants community colleges to work toward workforce development. And to do that, he wants to see NSHE, the Nevada System of Higher Education, work with legislators to create a new governing board for the system. And that's it. So can you explain to me like why the governor is pushing the solution specifically and why there's not something else that's going on? Yeah. So I think it's important to note that this isn't the first time something like this has been suggested. So the community colleges, unlike the University of Nevada, aren't baked into the state constitution. And so there's theoretically some legal leeway that exists with those four institutions that don't exist with the University of Nevada, UNR and UNLV. So that's part of the equation. But I think the more relevant part is that we're just a couple months removed from a really major attempted institutional fix for the higher education system. And that was question one. So for anyone who needs a refresher, that was a ballot question on the ballot last year that would have removed the regents from the state constitution. Uh, Legislators who created this amendment, this proposed amendment, basically argued that regents have for decades used their constitutional status to basically uh, avoid legal accountability. They've used it as a backdoor that basically meant that the legislature could not regulate higher education like they might regulate any other state agency like the DMV or something. So the regents basically said that this was legislative overreach, that uh, if legislators really wanted to regulate the system, they had the power of the purse. And then even beyond that, they said that the specific complaints legislators had came down to specific people, people who hadn't been at the system for five years or more. And so they basically said it was a solution in search of a problem. Ultimately, though, uh, speaking to a lot of people involved, the question was very confusing for a lot of voters. A lot of voters didn't fill out the question when they actually filled out their ballots. And it very, very narrowly lost. About 0.3 percentage points failed. So we've got the status quo. That didn't happen. And so now, in the absence of question one, we've got this suggestion from the governor. So yet another sort of big macro level fix for the institutional side of how the state runs its colleges and universities. Okay, so, you know, with this big macro level fix, you know, what problems would this change then address? 
So I think if you talk to a lot of people in higher education right now, there's a there's a big laser focus on the budget. The coronavirus has been bad for a lot of state budgets, and it's the same for Nevada, which is heavily reliant on tourism. We've seen hundreds of millions of dollars cut from higher education budgets between fiscal year 2020 and fiscal year 2023, and that could go further. We don't know. And the end result of this is, you know, these colleges that already weren't particularly resource-rich, right? The the community colleges are working with less than, say, the universities are, now have to deal with even less than they already had. And they've got some leeway, you know, these, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but I think that, you know, you talk to administrators and almost everything can be traced back to a resource issue. But the part of the issue here is that just restoring the cuts that were made doesn't address other fiscal problems that the colleges have with with the current way things are set up. A lot of them will point to the funding formula and say that it's too one-size-fits-all. It doesn't take into account the little differences between each institution um, that might make, uh, you know, different funding needs rise to the fore in different situations, right? It, it just simply doesn't address that. And then you've got things like targeted grants from the federal government and whether or not the higher education mission influences that. And that gets really deep into the weeds, and I, and I don't want to get into that here, but I just want to show that this is a really complicated issue. And when we talk about these complicated issues, that's why we're talking about a governance fix, right? That that people are suggesting, okay, you know, we've had these budget problems, these fiscal problems for so long, and problems is a strong word, issues, then how do we fix them? Okay, well, now we're approaching it from a governance perspective. Okay, so if the problem is money related then, which it kind of sounds like it is, why is the suggested fix, you know, governance? And, and you know, governance is in how that's run, how, you know, who's overseeing the colleges. Right. So there's not actually a ton of agreement about this. And it sort of depends who you ask. So the people who want to see this change say that, you know, the money problem is one in the same with the governance problem, that you cannot fix one without fixing the other. And, you know, they'll point to the fact that we've had a unitary system this whole time. We've had one board of regents with a chancellor, you know, it's running every institution. And we still have these problems, right? We, we The funding formula was most recently revised in 2013 and then sort of approved again in 15 and 17. And we still have these issues, right? So if, if those issues aren't being fixed, then maybe we need to address the way that we approach those problems in the first place, and that way being governance. Now, you ask other people, I've asked the four community college presidents, and I should say first that they didn't really have much to say about this because so few details have been made public. We really don't know why the governor wants this, and President Joyce Helens at Great Basin College even said to me that this uh, sounds like a solution in search of a problem because we've been presented with a solution. We've heard the solution, break up the system, put community colleges under their own board. But we have yet to hear, okay, but why? What is the problem that that is solving? So knowing that, these community college presidents say, you know, we can address the budget, not necessarily without addressing governance, that they don't see these two as intrinsically linked necessarily. That's not to say they don't see problems with the way that NSHE is run. But some of these presidents uh, are were very complimentary toward the regents themselves. President Karen Hilgerson at TMCC, the Truckee Meadows Community College, said she was glad to see a board of regents that was excited about, you know, community colleges. So a lot of this comes down to interpersonal relationships and how these people interact in the literal business of running a higher education system. Okay. So, you know, this is all theoretical right now. Nothing has been presented to the legislature. There's no bill draft requests. But but let's assume that at some point that there is a bill draft request, either this legislative session or next legislative session. What does this look like? You know, what are some of the forms that it could take and how it could be presented to the state? 
Right. So that's actually an interesting question because there there are a lot of ways this could go. I mean, you could spend days looking at every single system, higher education system in the United States because, you know, there are so many of them. Nevada is not super unique in that it has a single board governing higher all its higher education institutions, but the thing is, is even if you look at other states regionally, you can start to you can start to pick out a lot of differences, and you can start to see systems that look kind of like what the governor is suggesting. I think one that might come to a lot of people's minds is California. California has for decades had one system for universities and one system for community colleges. But even in some like planning reports from the governor's office of economic diversity, we've seen callouts for Arizona State University, which uses public-private partnerships in a, in a way that the state kind of wants to pursue the things where, you know, we'll, we'll get a private company to subsidize XYZ program in order to supplement state funding, this kind of thing. But even if you look at states that are pretty similar to Nevada, you, you look at, say, Utah or Idaho, both of which use a single board that governs all of their institutions. Utah actually just switched to a single board last year. There are still differences you can pick out. So for instance, like I mentioned, Utah, Utah has actually appointed regents. And one of those regents has to be from, they call them technical colleges, but a community college. So there's a lot of ways that you could pick at this. There's a lot of lot of different systems you could pull out. And the real fact of the matter is we just don't know. There has been no articulation. We've mentioned it a couple times already. There are so many open questions to this that we're really just going to have to wait and see what the governor's office suggests. And then we'll have to go from there. Okay. So again, there's all these different problems you've talked about. Question one, which failed to pass, but the, the, the legislature wants to kind of take some power away from something that's in the state constitution. And then you have the, the, the monetary issues, I will say, you know, not everyone seems to have problems with them, but this one-size-fits-all funding formula, you, you, you have the community colleges, some of them which like the system and some of them which don't. Is there a problem in higher education as a whole right now, or is it just that there needs to be some small fixes? You know, you know, at the end of the day, how is this affecting the students, right? That's the biggest question. Well, I think it really depends on who you ask. You know, you ask you know, five different people are going to get five different answers about what is or isn't working about Nevada's higher education system. And I mean, I've been talking to people about this for a long time now because of question one, and you talk to the Board of Regents and all of them will defend their position. They say that the the board does good work, that the that the single system has really helped streamline a lot of the processes. You know, you'll, you'll hear some corporate buzzwords like shared services, but they really praise that kind of stuff that, you know, once you centralize this kind of work, it's easier to get things done in their view. But you ask legislators about this and they've got, you know, decades of receipts of problems they've had with the regents or NSHE, the, the system of higher education, with officials who have dragged their feet on reforms or or been unreceptive to regulatory efforts from legislators. And this isn't ancient history either. A lot of this goes back to the last time the funding formula was revised in 2013 under Chancellor Dan Claych who at the time essentially misrepresented reports to the legislature. Basically, it was it was a complicated saga in which he he basically wrote a report to the legislator or wrote a report to legislators under a consultant's letterhead, basically misrepresenting himself and the system, and then joked about it on email later. Those emails were revealed through a public records request by the review, the Las Vegas Review Journal in 2016. And that ultimately ended up with 
Clayton's resignation in 2016, and one year later, the proposal of Assembly Joint Resolution 5, which would evolve into Question 1, right? So a lot of this stuff isn't particularly old, right? Like these conversations we're having, everyone remembers, everyone involved was there. One major difference, though, now is that a lot of the people, like the literal people involved, are new. We've got a new chancellor. We've got new university presidents. By the end of the year, we're going to have a new state college president. And, you know, we've got also in this same amount of time, we've got a new governor, a governor who I might add spent a decade on the Board of Regents. So he's very acquainted with higher education issues. So this is complicated and it's politics, right? It, It has to do with how these different people view the system and how they think it should be run. And I think that everyone involved has these intrinsic biases based on their own experience, right? Of course, regents want to continue being regents because they think they're doing good work. And of course, legislators think that they're doing the right thing too. And and they want to see the system run in the most equitable way possible. If you ask anybody, of course, the students are the priority. No one in the higher education system is not going to say that. And it really comes down to these philosophical differences about really complicated questions. And I don't know that there's any right answer. Everyone will tell you that their answer is the right answer. Well, if there is a bill drafted this session or next session, I'm sure we will hear from you again, Jacob, so you can explain all of this again. But Jacob, thank you so much for joining me today and explaining this uh, surprisingly complicated statement, I guess, by the governor. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you want to read Jacob's full story from Wednesday, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Jacob covers higher education for the Nevada Independent, as well as some other things, including co-hosting this very podcast with me. Welcome to another installment of Freshman Orientation, the segment where we get to meet new members of the Nevada Legislature. Democrat Fabian Donate is the newest member of the Nevada Senate. He was appointed by the Clark County Commission from a pool of applicants and sworn in after the session started because former Senator Ivana Kinsella stepped down to join the Biden administration. Donate is the youngest member of the Senate at only 24 years old and will be thrown right into the process as the chairman of the Senate Natural Resources Committee. We asked him what it was like not only being so young, but also coming in a bit late. The first thing that comes to mind is wild. It's It's been very heartwarming to see the congratulatory messages, not just from my friends, family, my community, but also from senators, from everyone in government and past legislators as well. It's been such a whirlwind of good emotions, just getting used to everything. But I'm, right now I'm in the training sessions and trying to catch up. I'm already getting constituent requests. So it's catching up to speed, trying to read everything. Because I'm younger, I've been more inclined to use technology. I'm more tech savvy than probably older folks. So I have a perspective that probably is more newly acquainted to the things that are happening right now. But also the fact that I'm young, I really appreciate older like mentorships from senators who have served here way longer than me because you know they have advice that definitely could aid me in this process and everyone has been really nice in the mentorship for that. We wanted to get a feel for Donate's background, where he's from, and what perspectives he'll be bringing to the table. He says his immigrant roots have had a big influence on him. 
I was born in East Los Angeles. I'm from East LA, but I moved to Vegas when I was a toddler. So have been raised in Nevada for most of my life. I consider myself a native Nevadan just because this is where I was raised. I'm the first in my family to go to college. I went to UNLV and I studied um, public health there. And most recently, I just finished completing my master's in health administration from the University of Maryland. I am the oldest of five kids. So four boys and one girl. The my little sister is five. My mom is actually, so my mom was born in East LA. So she, her parents are immigrants from Mexico. My grandma's from Mexico. Mom is a first, gener first generation from that side. But my dad is from Zacatecas, Mexico. So I consider myself a son of immigrant. So that's just one fraction just to illustrate. My grandfather was pretty involved in Mexican politics and I, I guess it runs in my blood. Donate was one of the first interns for Catherine Cortez Masto when she announced she was running for U.S. Senate. He was also involved with Make the Road Nevada, an advocacy group for immigrants and minority communities, and worked at the American Cancer Society. I, I worked full-time in my undergrad, and I went to school full-time. And while I was at the American Cancer Society, I was the only Spanish speaker there. So when cancer patients would come into the office, they would expect me to be the translator for them. And what I really learned at that point in time when I was advocating for these patients, they would come up to me and they would tell me like, Mijo, we're so glad that you're here. Like, finally someone that we can talk to. They're like, what are the resources you have? So I would give them like, okay, like if you need a ride to your appointment, here's your resource and all this. And so like, then there would be this dead silence. They would look at me and they're like, so are these, are these services available too if you're not documented? And I was like, no, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a doctor or not, but like, are you trying to ask me something else? And they're like, well, you know, I actually don't know where to get my treatment. The doctor told me I went to the emergency room. The doctor told me I had cancer. And so Make the Road Nevada was really the organization that opened my eyes just to the inequities that happen in the Latino community. And I think because of them, I started to learn just how impactful that was. So I credit them a lot. This session, one of his biggest priorities is public health, a field in which he recently got a master's degree expanding PPE protections, making sure that people have access to paid sick leave or possibly increasing that. Health and sex education reform because education is really what helps guide how people develop better um, habits as they get older. I think that's something that we definitely have to push forward. Here's a controversial one, but like I feel like now is the perfect time to start bringing it up access for undocumented families to, to healthcare services. That is something that I experienced at the American Cancer Society that aligns with developing a public option in healthcare, which is something that I think the state has been considering to explore. But those are the main ones that I have d decided that I want to prioritize. But it all kind of aligns with pretty much paving the state to have a better health infrastructure. I think as a, as a nation and as a state, everyone, there's some people that say, you know, we could have never prepared for this, right? Like, who would have known that we this pandemic would have happened? My argument to that is my public health professors. They have always been advocating for that. You can ask any of them. It was just when it was going to hit, you know? So I think this has opened our eyes just how valuable public health is to everything else. And so my priority is not only can we fix the things that are happening right now, but lay the foundation so that the state doesn't ever have to go through this ever again. We asked Onyate what made him want to be in the Senate at such a young age. I, I did Boy State. I'm a, I'm a Boy State alum. That was my first introduction to politics in high school, my senior year. I think in our U.S. government class, we had like these mock campaigns and like at the end of it, like we picked like one kid that like would eventually become like the president, right? And that was me. When I got to college, I was in student government and that is what I started meeting other political leaders like me that were my age. I started meeting 
senators and congresswomen. I was like, okay, well, you know, there's only so much that you can advocate for, and eventually you have to start being the one that makes the decision. He told us that one of his favorite hobbies is making music playlists for people. I've never been really good at poetry or anything, but I think that music can be used to illustrate and document stories and hardships sometimes, but it's also something that connects us all together from different perspectives. It's kind of like food, you know? Like, food brings people together, and I feel like music can do the same thing, and you just don't realize it's the same impact because we're not always sitting down. But if I share a song with you, you can reciprocate what that song means to you, and we can talk about that. Or we could just listen to it and have a good time. Now we'll be moving from Fabian Donate in the Senate to another person appointed after the session started, this time in the Assembly. Tracy Brown May was appointed to her seat after Assemblyman Alex Acefa stepped down amid an investigation by law enforcement into whether or not he lived in the district he represented. Brown May is the Director of Advocacy Board and Governor Relations for Opportunity Village, a nonprofit that assists adults with disabilities in Southern Nevada. We asked Brown May about how she ended up in Las Vegas. I moved to Vegas in March of 1994. I mean, it was actually part of a trauma recovery in my life. I, unfortunately, I lost some babies, right? I had an unsuccessful pregnancy. And I realized there was not a lot left in Massachusetts for me. I had been laid off from the unemployment office. So it was an economic recession at that point in time. That was supposed to be my career. Department of Employment Training and Rehabilitation. My mom is a retired state bureaucrat. You know, so like that. So I've always been in a family of service to our community. And I guess I didn't realize the impact that that had on me. So I picked up and moved away 2,500 miles completely by myself. It was an exciting time. It was really very empowering. And the MGM had just opened the brand new rebuilt yellow brick road. And I thought, wow, if there's a yellow brick road in Las Vegas, I'm going to go find it. So I did. When I first moved to Las Vegas, my first job was at Montgomery Ward's. And so I went and applied for a bingo position, right? Because how hard could that be? I thought, really? It was actually pretty hard. It was a lot of fun. But I had also been a bank teller at one point in my life, so I was pretty good at handling some cash. And that was really all that it took to be successful at bingo. So I got to know what it was like to be that frontline casino worker, working graveyard shift. You know, we had lots of homeless people that were living in a vacant lot that would come in and bathe in the restrooms overnight hours on that shift. I and mean, so it was really an eye-opening experience about some of the issues I think our community continues to face. Brown May eventually did have children and then changed careers to work for Opportunity Village. She also attended the College of Southern Nevada and got an associate's degree and is now in her last semester in Northeastern University, getting her bachelor's in public administration. We asked Brown May if she ever planned on becoming a legislator before being appointed. I'd never planned to become a legislator. That was not a goal for me. My goal was to be an advocate. But as you see, my life has taken this road and I just have this, I have this way of saying yes when there's a, a challenge or a new opportunity. It's not even a challenge, it's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Say yes when the opportunity presents itself. Yeah. So I said yes because I knew I, I personally felt like I could do this job and maybe it was the right time to try to do the job. I felt like I could help. Coming from a background of advocacy for people with disabilities, we asked her if she wanted to see the legislature tackle some of the hurdles disabled people face and how she wanted to see that done. Well, I think it's not going to be up to the the legislature to improve the community for people with disabilities, right? And so one of the things that I talked to uh, Speaker Ferguson about in the interim was about developing a disability forum, right? In the same way that the Southern Nevada Forum exists. And you have interested parties from all over 
that come together to help develop good policy initiatives that everybody can buy into. So my committee assignments are natural resources, government affairs, growth and infrastructure, right? And so even before I got here, I had the opportunity to work on the Transportation Planning Advisory Committee, which includes multimodal transportation and accessibility issues, right? Which is awesome. So today we had a report out from the Regional Transportation Commission, the DMV, you know, the Department of Transportation. So all of those even are relevant to people with disabilities. So that's really exciting. And just to bring up accessibility, and it's not even accessibility for people with disabilities, but accessibility for marginalized populations who may not be able to afford transportation in other ways, right? I think so. We just kind of have to broaden our perspective of accessibility for all populations. We also asked her if there were any bill draft requests that she was putting in or any that she was supporting. So I don't get any BDRs or bills this session because I just came in too late. I could have I could have really pushed, but I don't think that's the right thing to do, right? So I just really want to be I want to be able to help shepherd some bills through that, you know, that are really good. So there's a number of things that are super important in this session. And there's a lot of wonderful colleagues that are working on them. I'm passionate about health and human services. It's just an area that I, I've had a lot of experience in. And yeah, I really like that area. But I also like bicycles and, and accessibility to outdoor recreation areas. And so that, you know, and, and working with the administrator for that division, that's been super fun for me. And I really like that a lot. So jumping in with both feet, And for the first time, I really get to broaden my perspective to talk about all the issue areas and not be really focused um, on just that legislative area. So now there's lots of other great people that are running that legislative agenda for Opportunity Village. And I just get to help help lots of others work on their bills. Now, there is one. Actually, there's one that I want to say Assemblywoman Titus is carrying that on the Nevada Center for Independent Living brought to her about our language that we use in the Nevada Constitution as it refers to people with disabilities, right? And so that language needs to be updated. I was thrilled to see that bill actually come through. So there's some of that stuff, just about updating how we refer to each other. Lastly, we wanted to know what Brown may like to do in her spare time when she wasn't working at the legislature or working on finishing her bachelor's degree. So I love to read. I don't get to read recreationally very often right now because I'm still doing a lot of research, right? And right now it's a lot of bill reading, but I do love to read and I love to learn. So staying engaged is super important. My road bike, I got more than a thousand miles in last year. I love to cook with the family, right? The kids are awesome. My my 20-year-old, she can cook like nobody's business there, my little chef. So yeah, no, just family time. I love spending time at my church. That wraps up another installment of Freshman Orientation. Today we got to meet Democrat Freshman Assembler Fabian Donate and Democrat Freshman Assemblywoman Tracy Brown-May. These interviews were originally conducted by Tabitha Mueller and Michelle Rendells, and they were edited by me, Joey Lovato. You can find more Freshman Orientations on our website and also all of the latest on the 2021 legislative session. All right, and so I am Joey Lovato up here in Reno. Normally we have Jacob interviewing Megan, but uh, he had to go run and do some breaking news on the airport. So I am here in in his place. And so Megan is our healthcare reporter and she covers the coronavirus pandemic as well as healthcare and a lot of other things. Megan, hello, how are you this morning? I'm great, I'm happy to be here. All right, and so Megan, just as always, can we start by kind of talking about the trends of this week during the coronavirus? What have they looked like? 
Yeah. So we're recording just a little bit after 10 a.m. on Friday. So these numbers are current as of then. But right now we're looking at a little bit less than 290,000 cases across the state. Um, it's important to note that we've been you know, observing this downward trend week over week that is continuing. Um, it's worth noting that we're still at a somewhat um, not high, obviously, as high as we have been during this fall um, winter peak, uh, but cases are still about twice what they were at the low point in September before cases started to rise. So we're not quite back down at that low point yet, but we have seen cases continuing to decrease, which is good news. Um, we're at about 4,600 deaths um, as of this morning. Uh, important thing to note there is we have not really seen death numbers started to, starting to go down day over day. Those still have been pretty high. They're, they're down from a little bit of a peak, but we're still seeing a, a pretty sizable numbers of deaths each day. And then as, as of uh, this morning, we're at about 260,000 recoveries across the state. And hospitalizations, it's worth noting as well, those are also on a decreasing trend, but similar to cases, uh, we've seen that they're, they're still about twice what they were at that low point in September. And so can you also just tell me, you know, we've got the vaccine rolling out. What, what are the numbers looking like with the vaccine right now? Yeah, so the vaccine rollout continues, though obviously, you know, a lot of folks are eager to get the vaccines, so it's not going quite as fast as they would like, but we're at about uh, 380,000 vaccines administered, um, according to the latest CDC data, that's statewide. Uh, if you look at the numbers, that means about um, almost about 10% of the population has either been fully or partially vaccinated, about 2.5% have been fully vaccinated, which means they've gotten both doses of the vaccine. Uh, obviously, that rollout is continuing, the state is seeing um, slightly higher numbers of first doses being sent to the state each week, which is good news, but obviously, it's still not what they would like. And state officials say, you know, we have um, a lot more capacity to administer doses than what we're receiving right now in terms of doses shipped to the state. So that continues to be an ongoing issue in addition to this sort of um, vaccine equity distribution issue that, that we've been following as well. And then, you know, the governor, he made an announcement this week about, about you know, uh, what's going on. So can you kind of explain, you know, what that what that announcement was? Yeah, so we're, we're going to see starting on um, Monday, that's February 15th, um, some changes to the state's um, coronavirus health and safety mitigation measures. So the biggest one is that um, some establishments will be allowed to go to 35% of capacity instead of 25%. So that includes restaurants and bars and casinos, uh, other places like libraries and museums and aquariums and zoos will be allowed to go to 50% instead of 25%. So that's kind of the, the biggest news that we're, we're keeping an eye on. There will also be some um, additional changes um, to gathering sizes. For instance, private gatherings have been limited to 10 people. Those now will be slightly expanded. Following that, we're going to see some additional changes take effect um, over the next sort of 75 days. The, the goal is by the time that we get to May 1st, that the state is actually going to hand over uh, control of these mitigation measures essentially to local governments to decide what, what they want to have in place. Uh, the state will still keep in place. It will be responsible for the, the statewide mask mandate, and they'll still be um, requiring social distancing, that sort of six feet that we've been talking about. So now the state's still going to be keeping an eye on data. They say they're obviously going to be working with counties uh, on that transition, local governments on that transition, uh, but they're going to be keeping an eye on that data to, to see where the trends go from here and, and whether you know they get any worse before we reach that May 1st date. All right. 50% capacity for zoos. I didn't know we had any zoos in Nevada. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, if they're uh, there, if they're there, you could be at fifty percent. So. All right, cool. Hopefully, we can.、Uh, hopefully, the lions are at one hundred percent capacity. <laughs> well, we'll we'll leave it at there for now, Megan. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest on COVID nineteen data. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Fabian Donate, Tracy Brown May, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the show, consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen, or share it on social media. It helps the show grow and reach more people. Tell us how we're doing. Comments, questions, complaints, or even the sought-after praise by emailing me at joey at thenvindie.com or Jacob at jacob at thenvindie.com. Local Reno band People with Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. We had additional original music this week by our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host Joey Lovato, and I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>